Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cultivation Cast by Black Dog LED with Kevin Frender and Noah Miller. In this podcast series, we cover all things related to indoor cannabis cultivation. We have received some feedback, and we continue to get feedback, so please keep it coming in terms of what you'd like to see, what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to learn about, what topics you'd like us to cover. However, today is a special day to us because we're going to do our first interview in our podcast. And we said, if we're going to do our start our interviews and kick those off, we want the best guest, the big one, the big daddy of it all. And um, it's Dr. Bruce Bugby. So that's who you can see on screen. It's incredibly exciting to have him here with us. I'll do an intro, but just for my own personal, and Kevin will have some as well, is I joined Black Dog as employee number two about 11 years ago. And some of the first articles I read about Spectrum 11 years ago were stuff that was out there and published by Dr. Bugby. So he doesn't know me, but he goes way back uh, from my side. I remember him for over 10 years now. I've been following him. He doesn't know that. But so it's an honor to have him on our show as not only a guest, but our inaugural guest on our podcast that we've been doing. So welcome, Dr. Bugby. A, a little bit of background for those of you that don't know him. If you don't, you should right away stop go to youtube and google him and youtube and start watching his videos he's not just about spectrum it's everything dr bugby is a professor at utah state university and also he's the president and founder of apogee instruments how we know him even more because we love and use some of their instruments ourselves so i'd recommend you watch his videos and check out apogee instruments it is uh, an amazing resource if you're into lighting and you want to get real intense, real geeky about it. They have a lot of the tools you need to really delve into those topics. So again, we're incredibly honored to have Dr. Bugby here. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bugby. Thank you, Noah. Glad to be here. So I, you know, we we're as people that follow our podcast, know we're kind of geeks and nerds about this stuff. We love the lighting, we love the science. But before we delve into all that and start to melt people's brains. I've watched a lot of videos with you. I've never heard Kevin here. I know him from working side by side. He grew his first plant when he's about three years old. He put a grapefruit seed into a pot, grew it up, and that was his first plant. It just died not long ago. So I know how he got in and he's been doing it ever since growing indoors. I've never heard. How did you get into plants? What got you into this whole career and path of plants? We could spend a few minutes. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. For me, it started in... Uh as an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota. And back then, we, it was, well, I took a botany class and uh, we grew some plants. And I just, I got fascinated with it. And uh, oh, germinating them on paper towels so you could watch the roots grow. Uh, at the time, I was an engineering major uh, in, at, the, at the university. Uh, and, and, you know, I, did okay at math, so I'm going to be an engineer. Uh, but as I took more botany classes, it was just compelled to the study of plants. And I brought that quantitative background from engineering to kind of a quantitative study of plants. Um, energy fluxes and mass flows in plants. And that's how it got started. I was even selling roadside stand of some vegetables for a little while. And, and then I got serious about it, changed majors. It just I just kept going in school, you know, one more degrees and more time in school. And then you learn to really love doing research on plants, not just growing them, but doing research on them. And, you know, fast forward many years and I'm still doing that. Excellent. So tell us, I mean, I follow some of your stuff. Um, I, I try to watch your videos. They're very information dense. I have to watch them usually a couple times to get everything out. But tell us and the, the audience, 
where you, you've covered, obviously, we could go into your CV is deep and wide. We could go through, you've done a lot. Let's talk about what are you doing now and what are you focused on? I know some of it, but why don't you tell the, the everyone where you're really focusing your time now? Yeah, we've, we've, I've been at the university for over 40 years. And all, during virtually all of that time, we have gotten funding from NASA to study plants in space. So real high inputs, real optimal conditions, and it's food for people, um, but and particularly now for uh, life support on Mars, a closed regenerative community. And we still get funding from NASA, but all that funding resulted in a significant infrastructure in this laboratory, I mean, our studio as part of the lab, um, of growth chambers to study very high inputs to plants, high CO2, high light. Well, because of that, Growers started funding our research, and they needed to. Some big growers around the United States needed to know more precisely how to optimally grow cannabis. So now, um, almost half of the lab is devoted to cannabis research. So we we both grow food crops for NASA and and do cannabis research for all the cannabis growers. Gotcha. And so I, you know, universities, it's kind of a weird spot with uh, THC still being federally illegal. Um, is do you guys primarily focus on hemp lines or do you also touch high THC lines? Yeah, no, our license is for low THC cannabis, which people call that hemp. But we we usually don't call it hemp. We just say low THC cannabis. And and then the other type of cannabis is high THC cannabis. It's all cannabis sativa. And really, those two plants are only separated by a couple of genes. So we can grow, do studies on low THC cannabis and predict the responses of high THC cannabis because they are so genetically similar. The analogy I use all the time is sweet corn and field corn. Those are really different tastes, but you can't tell the difference by looking at them. You have to eat the corn. And then eat the corn and say, oh, this is sweet corn, or oh, this is field corn. Those sweet corn and field corn are the same genus and species, and they're also separated by just a couple of genes. So that's why we could do studies on low THC cannabis and predict the responses of all cannabis. There are more differences between among lines of low THC cannabis and among high THC cannabis than there are between the two types. Um, so Kevin can explain to you that uh, we feel the same way. We are uh, being a lighting company, a non-plant touching. We are registered with the state of Colorado. We have a hemp grow here, and that's what we use to do our R&D as well for the same reasons as we feel it's a perfect analog for high THC being as close as you said. So we have a room full of hemp growing for the same reason. So yeah. interesting. It's good to see this, this type of research occurring at the university level. I think we're all excited to see it move forward, you know, the way that you guys are and even more so. It, we would all like to see more research, I think. So, um, you know, so where I'd like to start with this discussion is actually a little bit about Apogee, not necessarily the background. For those of you that don't know Apogee, if you want light meters or anything, they have a broad swath of scientific instruments that are great, good value and good products. So definitely check those out. 
Um, but one of their new products that we were able to play with before this was they have a new DLI meter. And before we dive into the DLI meter, um, you know, Kevin, could you explain a little bit from our perspective, because we get involved in greenhouses um, and why you'd look at DLI in a greenhouse versus solar lighting and speak a little bit to DLI. And then, then we'll have Dr. Bugby explain a little bit about his product and what they're doing with it. Certainly. So DLI or daylight, uh, I'm sorry, uh, daily light integral is a measurement of how much total light the plant is getting throughout the day. So if you think of PPFD, which is photosynthetic photon flux density, that's a instantaneous measurement. DLI is a measurement of how much light total throughout the entire 24-hour period a plant receives. So DLI does depend on the period of illumination, how many hours the lights are on, whereas PPFD goes to zero if lights are off and stays at whatever it is when the lights are on. So perfect. So um, we got a meter. It's very small, about this big. I'm going to show it on screen here with uh, the website, the Apogee website. Dr. Bobby, can you, can you explain to us, uh, you know, as a manufacturer, I'm like, what was your use case? You guys had a reason for developing this product. You didn't do it because you had nothing better to do. Tell us a little bit about why you uh, came out with this product and how you see people using it. The reason that DLI meters aren't everywhere is that it needs a microprocessor and instrument to add up all these photons per second. Because you could take an ordinary voltmeter and a, and a sensor and get the, the instantaneous flux, the microvolts per second, but you need an, a data logger, a microprocessor to add them up through the day. So that adds cost to the instrument. So if everybody starts with Kevin, like you said, a PPFD meter, you just measure instantaneous, but that is not how plants grow. They grow based on the total number of photons in a day, as you said. So really, it's up to use my smart board over here, but we usually have micromoles of photons per second. Now there's meters squared in here, but I'm leaving that out. So you multiply this by the number of seconds per day, and of course you get moles per day. And this is what determines plant growth. This is not a constant. In, in veg for cannabis, we have an 18-hour day. In, when it becomes generative for reproductive, we have a 12-hour day. So this is what we measure. We multiply by the photo period and you get the total uh, moles per day. Um, interesting, we call that daily light integral. We really should have called it daily photon integral, but that's okay. Like, you know, everybody understands light, and you say it's photons, and they go, oh my, you know, that's over my head. Um, but light is a synonym for the number of photons. So that's the, that's the simple math. It's just multiplying the instantaneous by the uh, photo period. And the photo period's a big deal. I mean, it, there can be a lot of different photo periods for crops. And obviously going from 18 to 12 uh, hours of light per day, that's a big difference in the multiplier. So now this new little DLI meter that you're talking about has a microprocessor in it. And it integrates, it, it reads out digitally in DLI. And it also um, measures the photo period, make sure the custodian didn't come on and turn on the lights in the middle of the night. Um, it, it gives a photo period indication as well. 
And it's, it, because it has a microprocessor, it can store data. You can push the button and go back to yesterday, day before, and then download the data. All of those things make it really uh, functional. And it, like all those products, it took us a while to refine it, get it just right. A lot of beta testing with uh, colleagues, um, a lot of feedback. But but now I'm, I'm pleased it's it's really selling well. It's uh, selling to lots of people, so that's a, it did it did what we hoped it would do. And of course, it's really extra useful in situations where, um, for example, if you've got greenhouse growing or field growing, because the light intensity is not constant, but is changing throughout the day as the sun goes through the sky, as well as clouds and, and whether there's wildfire smoke floating overhead, that's where the DLI meter can tell you what your plants are actually receiving. Because we can, if you're growing in a a room with no access to sunlight whatsoever, and you just turn an electric light on, it's really easy to take a PPFD reading and figure out what your DLI should be as long as light is on all the time. But it's basically impossible to tell what that DLI is going to be for a given day in a greenhouse unless you actually measure it. Yeah, that's, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because on, on partly cloudy days, you got to measure it. Can't this even And even inside, this is not always constant. The voltage can vary inside. This can go up and down a little bit. So the meter records all of that. So it's it's even more accurate inside, but it especially is terrific uh, outside. And of course, it's just a regular quantum sensor anyway. Just push the button and, it's, and it gives you this instantaneous value right away. Yeah, and, and uh, like you said, we enjoy this stuff. So not only did we get it, we tested it. It's pretty cool. Um, as Dr. Buckby said, you set it up. You just kind of set it where you want it. Forget it. It's got a place for a tripod. I used a nice standard tripod I had to set it up conveniently. And then um, when you take it down, you plug it in like a thumb drive to your computer and boom, you get your CSVs. It gives it in half hour increments for the previous day. And then you also get daily averages as well. It's really a nice piece of equipment. And um, it is very small and simple to use, which as a tech, I appreciate uh, the simplicity of the device. It's not trying to be a thousand things. It does one thing and it does it well. Um, so now though, you know, we've been talking a little bit about how you envision using it. You know, we get involved in a lot of greenhouse projects and I'd say, you know, Kevin, if we look at it, what we try and do, how we would use it, because we will use that meter, how would we use it to help people understand to optimize? Because it's not about selling lights to people, it's about delivering the optimal lighting package that's not too little and not too much. There's no point in selling extra. And this is where, when you're not in a closed, sealed room, where a DLI meter comes in handy to really make sure we optimize. Yeah, so... When customers call us up and they say they've got a greenhouse and they need supplemental light, the first question we have to ask them is, well, where is your greenhouse? Because the amount of DLI that you're actually going to get depends on your latitude. It depends on the average weather conditions where you are. You're going to have much higher DLI in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada than you are going to have in San Francisco just because of the weather conditions, even though they're at very similar latitudes. So um, it really does make a difference exactly where your greenhouse is. Now, luckily there are some charts out there that give average DLI for each month of the year that cover most of the United States pretty well, but it still varies from place to place. So really the best way to determine exactly how much supplemental light would be needed for a greenhouse would be to get one of these DLI meters, put it in the greenhouse, 
log the data for a year, and then you can see exactly what supplementation you would need to get up to the DLI you're looking to provide. Now, without getting all of that data right away, because um, it would take logging it for a whole year to get a good uh, representative idea of what you're going to get in a greenhouse, we can use these charts to look it up and uh, determine what the average monthly uh, DLI is. But even that gets a little bit complicated because cannabis is a day length sensitive plant. The DLI charts are specifying how much uh, total light you're getting every day, but that's assuming that you're not using any sort of shading apparatus in the middle of summer to block out the sun so the plants are only getting 12 hours a day. So the DLI charts can't tell you what your real DLI is. That's where the meters would really come in and be very useful to tell you what you're actually getting in your actual situation with your actual grow setup. <laughs> The devil's in the details always. All right. So that explains how we would use it here and how we do use DLI here when we have people deal with greenhouses. Big important add-on to this is greenhouses, even the best greenhouses do a lot of shading. And you look up a chart and it might say you're getting 15 moles a day. Well, that's outside. And inside the greenhouse, you might be getting seven moles a day, depending on how good your greenhouse is, how much structure there is. If that's the part you have to measure. Those charts can't tell you how, what the trans, average transmission of light is in a greenhouse through a day. So measuring it right where the plants are, as you said, is really critical. And in addition, you can look up the transmissivity data for whatever your greenhouse is made out of, whatever the glazing is on your greenhouse. But many people don't realize that even that changes with the angle of the sun in the sky. Uh, depending on the reflectivity off of that surface, you may be getting even less transmission at certain times of the day than you would at noon through the uh, greenhouse glazing too. So it gets really complicated and there's nothing like actually measuring it in place to get real numbers. Right on. Yeah, uh, that, that is a great tool. And I could see if I had a greenhouse that was functioning right now and it was already lit up, I want to stick a few of these in random spaces just to see how things are working out in the real world. And again, it's very affordable device and really cool. It's a great device. And that's kind of what we've come to expect from Apogee. It's not only good scientific equipment, but the things that actual people doing this work really need, the tools we need in our tool chest. You know, when I was thinking about it, to me, it's a great tool to have in your toolbox as a lighting person, right? It's just incredibly helpful or as an agricultural person working in greenhouses, just incredibly helpful. So thanks for coming up with a great new idea, a new mousetrap and love it. And so we're, we're definitely going to be playing with it a bit more and it's already been fun to mess around with. So thanks for bringing that to market. So the DLI we've been talking about has been really covering light quantity. However, as we all know, quality matters along with quantity in many things in life, including spectrum. So let's change gears a little bit and talk a bit about the quality instead of the quantity of spectrum. You know, we just did another interview with Kevin and he pointed out that prior to LED development, the most efficient lighting source was low pressure sodium. I would tell you, Kevin's been growing under artificial light for like 30 years, so he's played with everything. But this was never used in grows, even though it is the most efficient way to generate photons before LEDs. Do you have any opinion or any thoughts on why that is? Are you familiar with low pressure sodium, Dr. Budby? Yeah, no, we wanna make sure to just low pressure and high pressure sodium. And yep. since I've got this nice board, I'll, I'm going to use it. So here's our, this is, we use the symbol lambda for wavelength. 
and I'm going to put 400 nanometers here and 700 here. These are nanometers. These are the wavelengths we see. These are generally the wavelengths that cause photosynthesis. Low pressure sodium has a single spike of light at 589 nanometers. And let's see, let's put that in yellow. It's right there. That's the one spike. That's a low pressure sodium. It makes everything look black. And we've done some research with that to, to look at secondary metabolites and things. But because it makes the plants black, it's just not a, not a common light at all. So now we go to 1,000 watt high pressure sodium, which has been, it's a gold color. And I say it's been the gold standard for lighting. And, and that, of course, has, it's a broader peak. It's got some peak, it's some spikes in here, big spikes out here. It looks something, something like that. That's, this is high pressure sodium as opposed to low pressure. Now, 1,000 watt high pressure, about 10 years ago, we got double-ended high pressure sodium. And at that time, it caught up that past low pressure sodium. So it didn't start out that way, but we kept working on it. And, and oh, 10 years ago, because of that doubling of efficiency, HBS was still a really good light. Uh, but it was a mature technology. It's not gotten any better for 10 years. And whereas LEDs just keep getting better all the time. And of course, LEDs have now caught up in the past high pressure sodiums for efficiency. Uh, but there's, I want to, this is the difference between, uh, let's see, what LPS here, low pressure sodium, and then high pressure sodium. But you're right, and the low pressure, it's a long tube, and it's an unusual light. And, and it's not much used for anything because it's monochromatic. About the only time you see them anymore is in uh, astronomical observatory parking lots anymore because it's useful for illuminating the parking lot for human vision, but doesn't interfere with the telescope nearby too much. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a, there's a case for that unique <laughs> application. Yeah. But they actually don't grow plants very well either, in my experience. and. Uh, I think the yeah, spectrum is broad enough. So, so that brings us to our point of, you know, as we all know, and you know, with LEDs, the most efficient, if we were all just chasing efficiency, okay, just uh, again, going back to quantity or volume, uh, red light is the most efficient to produce with LEDs today, okay? So what, what people don't always understand is, Dr. Bobby, would you explain a little bit about why you wouldn't just grow with only red, even though it's by far the cheapest light to produce with the technology we have today? It's really a similar argument to this. All of one color makes it difficult. Now, having said that, there are some plants we can grow with just red LEDs. And, and in fact, back, oh, this would have been almost 40 years ago, we have a publication and you can grow wheat with low pressure sodium. It's just amazing. But just wheat, don't try and grow lettuce with that or tomatoes. Um, and even now, for some monocots, we can grow them with only red LEDs. But that's not generally true for all the leafy greens, um, not true for canvas. The plants just get confused. There's a lot of signals that are queuing up. So then we bring in some other colors, but 
as you guys know, we still use a lot of red. That's an efficient LED and it's efficiently absorbed. Those photons are efficiently absorbed by the plant. And so all those cues you're talking about, that's something we don't get a lot of people that understand that part of it. And that's something Kevin has focused on heavily with our spectrum is what you can do with light, not just to produce crop. And Kevin, would you speak a little bit about photomorphogenesis and what we, because I don't know if Dr. Bugby's familiar with what we try to do sending those signals via light and what we do with that? Yeah, so photomorphogenesis simply refers to the plant taking cues of, of different wavelengths of light and producing different compounds in response to receiving those wavelengths of light. Uh, but there's other effects on the plant as well, which is, for example, uh, blue photons tend to discourage cell expansion, whereas red photons tend to encourage it, especially the far red photons encourage cell expansion. Um, and an excess of of far red photons triggers the shade avoidance response where the plant, regardless of how bright, how intense the light is, the plant thinks it's got something up above it shading it out. And so it elongates its stems and grows larger leaves because it's trying to outgrow this perceived foe up above it. Um, so we actually manipulate the ratios of these different colors in our spectrum to trigger the certain effects in the plant that we want to achieve. And for cannabis, because we are not growing it, I mean, there are varieties of hemp that are grown for their stems, but those are not economical to grow indoors. Um, you're far cheaper off growing hemp outdoors in fields if you're growing it purely for fiber. So the hemp we're growing or the cannabis we intend to grow with our lights, we don't want long stems. We don't want big leaves. We want to manipulate the plant's morphology or how it grows to keep it short, compact. We want to keep the leaves smaller so that we can get deeper canopy penetration of the light that we've got to nourish more leaves deeper in the canopy and to increase the overall production of flowers on the plant. So our spectrum is specifically tuned specifically to keep the plant short, compact, bushy, and put more of its energy into flowers and fruit as opposed to stems and uh, leaves. So there's that's what we do with our spectrum. Bruce, what have you guys, you guys do so much interesting research out there. And I know not only you, but your, your wide network of other graduate students and other professors out there. Again, I've watched your videos. You have a, a big network. Um, what, what type of stuff have you done with plant morphology? Or like you were saying, sending those signals. I liked how you put it, uh, queuing in on those signals from the light. What are you doing in that area? I think it's helpful, and, and Kevin, you touched on this, it's both manipulating plant shape with colors of light and then manipulating the biochemical synthesis of compounds with the colors of light. Those are two different things, and the light does somewhat different things for each, but the plant shape is a little, a little more simple. And yeah, you said it exactly right. If we get um, far red, out here, and there's some really wonderful far red LEDs that are very efficient. The plant proceeds shaded, it gets taller. Well, that's not a good thing. It, it, it's a good thing in the field if you're trying to outcompete weeds, but taller is not better in controlled environments. So we, we use this far red light, far red photons with discretion, a little bit, a little timing. That's certainly an area of our research. How much, how many photons and when to uh, get the plants to fill in? I mean, not only do they get taller, they get wider. And wider is good, they fill in quicker. So 
Before I read it, I say it's like a blowtorch. You know, it's really powerful, but be careful. Don't use too much. Uh, so there's another tool we can, can add. And then, of course, the red is just huge right here. And then blue photons, and I can put them in blue on here, are right here. And those blue photons, as you said, they help keep the plant more compact. So look at these tools. You turn the knobs, you make them bigger and smaller. Um, these are the, and blue, red's the most efficient, but blue is also pretty good. Um, so now there's three tools, blue, red, and far red, but our eyes see green photons and the plants reflect green. If you build a light like this, the plants look black, like they would have under that low pressure sodium. And you can't diagnose diseases, you can't diagnose subtle nutritional disorders, you can't see microscopic insects. So now we add in some white, which as you guys know, it's a phosphor converted blue. So we get a spectrum, something like this, the blue and then a phosphor conversion here. And now we add green photons and just, a, just enough green so we can see the plants. And some of our work, is looking at the balance of these wavelengths. People say it's a balanced light. Yeah, it's like saying something is balanced fertilizer. I mean, what's balanced? It, it, you know, there's no, there's no definition and, of what optimal balance is. So, and it depends on what you're trying to grow. Yeah, that's right. So we, we, got, we got white LEDs. Look at all the combinations, which you guys well know. But that's our work, is what ratios of these results in the optimal shape and then the optimal synthesis of what we call secondary metabolites. And I know that you guys know this, but the best example of that is red lettuce. We prize red lettuce because it looks cool in salads. That red color is a pigment called anthocyanin and that is triggered by blue and UV photons. So we can take a red lettuce and make it look green if we give it the wrong colors. It's really amazing. So these secondary metabolites are useful. And then we have down here, as you guys know, because this is a big part of your business, the UV photons in this region here. These are way less efficient, electrically efficient, but it doesn't take many photons to cause bigger responses too. So now look at this. We have one, two, three, four, five basic categories of, of light corresponding to colors. That's a this is complicated research. What combinations of these result in the best plant shape and the best plant quality? And of course, in the case of quality, we're trying to um, have very high cannabinoid levels in the plants but also high terpenes in the plants too. And, and we can't forget about quantity. You know, quality is important, but we need both quantity and quality. Uh, like you said, quality, I agree, is incredibly important. But if you get one little bud and you put all that energy into it, no good either, even if the quality is off the charts. So it is a game of bouncing. And as Kevin points out, with LEDs, 
there's there are so many permutations we could test now that are at our fingertips that it's infinite almost. There's really no way you could, you know, like you pointed out, the permutations get exponentially large. So, um, Kevin, as far as that goes, what was interesting is Kevin's always talked about phosphor converted blues and, and the white, and he always says they smear the light. Dr. Bugby, you're the first person I've ever seen graph out smearing light and actually do a good job of it. That's the best graphical representation I've ever seen what Kevin says all the time. Thank you for smearing that light on the chart for us. Well, and one thing that the, the fact that white LEDs that are sold on the market right now are actually blue LEDs with a phosphor coating on them inherently means that the blue LED underneath that phosphor coating is always going to be by itself more efficient at putting out photons than the white LED you get if you put phosphors on top. Because the way that phosphors are working, it's chemical compounds that are catching these photons, these blue photons, and they're actually stealing a little bit of energy from that photon and re-releasing it as a longer wavelength, lower energy photon that's in the yellow, green, orange, or red area of the spectrum. So the blue, the blue LED underneath it is always inherently more efficient than a white LED you can make with it. But of course, we do want some of those green photons in our spectrum as well, as Bruce uh, Bugby pointed out, if you don't have enough green in there, it's difficult to see the plants. And years ago, when white LEDs were much less efficient than they are now, uh, we had far fewer green photons in our spectrum than we do now. And we actually had special eyewear that you could get that would block out the excess of blue and, and red light so that your eyes would still see it as a balanced white spectrum. But since then, we've tweaked our spectrum and added just enough. And it turns out it didn't require many more green photons to fool the human eye into seeing everything as balanced white light. But it turns out that it still doesn't fool cameras. And if you take a camera into a, a grow room filled with our lights, even though you standing in there see everything as being natural white light, the camera still sees it as very purple light because we've got so much of the red and the blue photons in there as well. So going back to those UV photons, there's a lot of uh, different research out there showing that UV especially can trigger a lot of secondary metabolites, as well as I've heard you speak before that uh, UV also helps control the morphology, the shape of the plant, as well as the uh, cuticle thickness. And that's something we've definitely noted with playing around and researching our own lights. Uh, the plants just seem healthier when they're grown with a small portion of UV. You don't want to overdo it or you give them the equivalent of sunburn. But with a small portion of UV, the plants seem much healthier and more disease resistant. And I suspect that's because the thicker cuticle that the plant actually develops with UV light exposure. Yeah, when we work with, we work with UV and blue and they do similar things to plants, as, as you point out. So blues are a lot more efficient. So you, you try to keep them short with blue. But with these, as the wavelengths get shorter, they get higher energy. One thing for sure, you talk about healthy plants, UV can be really hard on diseases like spores. And you put UV photons on and it'll kill the spores. And the plants make a self-protecting sunscreen to help block them. So those damaging photons don't affect the leaf, but they can be, that's a, that's a big use of, uh, especially UVC lights for uh, minimizing covering uh, mildew in uh, cannabis. But yeah, this, this, with the advent of UV lights, this is a whole new area of, of uh, research. Uh, 
power? How can we use those? It's sort of the two ends of the spectrum. I mean, I said this was like low torch over here. Well, so is the UV. If you want to get it just right, not too much, not too little, um, as, as you alluded to. And that's how I ended up getting involved with Black Dog LED so many years ago, over 10 years ago now, because I'd grown with all sorts of different lights on the market. LEDs were just in their infancy at that point. And I tried a couple of LED grow lights that were garbage, um, didn't grow plants very well. But when I tried my first Black Dog light, which Black Dog was, I believe, the first LED grow light manufacturer on the market that actually included ultraviolet and those far red LEDs in their spectrum, I noticed the, the same plants that I'd been growing indoors under artificial lights for 30 years suddenly looked much different and grew much differently and were much happier with the addition of that appropriate ratios of far red and ultraviolet. Yeah. And luckily on top of that, um, I don't know if you've seen this at all in your research, you know, Dr. Bubby, you were just mentioning UVC um, for being used for sterilization. Uh, the UV LEDs and UV spectrum stuff has gotten a big boost from COVID, all the sterilization, we're seeing a major increase in efficiencies. And as you said, 10, 11 years ago, Dr. Bugby, when we first used UV, and we're only using UVA, not even B or C, the real energetic stuff for obvious reasons, but literally they were so woefully inefficient then, but we were such big believers in what they could do with a little bit of it that we still took that hit. The good news is UV has gotten much more efficient as you kind of referenced earlier, LED has continued to get better all the wavelengths, whites, blues, and everything. One interesting thing is, uh, and this is strictly a, an LED geek question, is you know, you're doing a lot of research and you have all this stuff at your disposal and you were talking about blue. Do you guys play with different, like, because our light has multiple targeted blues, we don't want one. When you guys are looking at blue at the, and I know you're probably dumbing it down for us, which we're not scientists, but do you start to look at different blues, even multiple blues, deeper blues versus less deep blues or less energetic blues? We do, and we have been surprised to find. So let me, yeah, let's see. I can here. I can erase part of this uh, graph right here, but just erase that part. And so now we do blues right here, four hundred to five hundred. Those are those are all considered blue. So when we do work, we take these UV photons here, here, we have a bunch of different blue lights like this. We thought the shorter the wavelength, the more, the bigger the effect on, on reducing stem length and peak size. What we found was the 450 nanometer um, had the biggest effect of all the blues. That's right in the middle of the blue. That's also the most efficient blue. Wavelengths too for as far as LEDs. We're still continuing that research, but if I if I kind of made these peak heights proportional to plant response, the, the 450 nanometers have been the most effective at uh, keeping the plant compact. Now these studies were done with lettuce, which is a big deal because the lettuce leaves expand. They weren't done with cannabis, but um, so it's, yes, we have done those studies um, and we're continuing to do them. So it's interesting that you mentioned those studies were done with lettuce because lettuce has a, a stem, but it's a degenerate stem. It doesn't ever get very long. And uh, one of the things that we have actually been researching and, and building more into our lights 
is more of those deep blue 420-ish nanometer photons because we found that that actually decreases stem elongation, not necessarily leaf size, but stem elongation more when we've tested it. In the case of lettuce, good leaf expansion is prized. And so yes. and the stem is millimeters long. It's tiny. Yeah. I was talking about leaf expansion in lettuce. And the leaf expansion was decreased the most at 450. So it's a, but, but yes, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Look at all those options for optimizing plant growth. So now I don't want to get into the weeds, no pun intended, but and I'm asked a question I don't even understand is. I would have guessed that you'd get more bang for the buck for those more energetic ones like you guys hypothesized at one point. You ran an experiment and found otherwise. What does that start to tell you in your brain if it's not the energy, the energy of the photon that's driving the plant's messaging, it's actually maybe a true color? Or what What would you now hypothesize why it's 450 versus a 400 or 410? What's your thought? Good, good question. The photons need to be absorbed by pigments in the plants. You gotta, you have to have a photon emitter and then a pigment absorber. And down in this region, um, we're looking at anthocyanins that are absorbers, carotenoids, chlorophyll is more up in this region. So we have different uh, absorptions and the absorption curves for some of these pigments are not as well defined as you might think, I mean, oh gosh, to try and put it on here, I'll do something like, they might look like that, but they might look like this. And well, that, that little shift there makes a very big difference. That's what the uh, most efficient combination of an emitter would be in a biological response. And then of course, it's difficult to even study those because you can isolate those compounds see what their absorption is isolated in the laboratory, but they may actually behave differently in the cellular environment of the plant where they're surrounded by other molecules. So yep. it's very tricky to research. It's that yep. old one where you isolated stuff with UV and such, right? Where it was taking spun up. And yeah, I mean, I hear from customers all the time that uh, think they've studied this stuff that, oh, well, there's only one UV receptor that the plants have, and that's UVR8, and it only responds to UVB photons. And while it's true that there is a receptor that's been found called UVR8 that does respond to UVB photons, that doesn't mean it's the only one. And just because we haven't identified what the other ones are, doesn't mean the plant isn't reacting to it. So yeah, we've definitely well, seen that. UVR8 is over here. That's, yeah. That's real short wavelengths. No, these, these are major pigments in plants. There's plenty of pigments that absorb these, but we don't know the exact shapes of their curves. And even more, there's chlorophyll in here filtering it. It's, it's complex. Well, what you just explained to me might help us get over one of our challenges in here. We've been trying to talk about how to explain to people the difference between how humans perceive light and how plants perceive light. We always kind of say, well, humans have human eyeballs and plants have plant. But I guess what we should really be saying, you just cued me into, is we have eyeballs and they have pigments. And that's their way of discerning a 450 blue from another one. Maybe that's how we should be explaining it to people in a more accurate manner, is they see light differently because they're using pigments and they see light in a completely different way. It's why we tell people don't use lumen meters for dealing with plants. They're just inappropriate. Technically, we have three pigments in our eyes that are we are only seeing three colors of, of light. Our brain actually fills in the rest of the information for us. 
to make us perceive more than three colors of light, but human eyes are only actually receiving three colors of light. We're only not receiving, but only uh, detecting three wavelengths of light. Which I imagine the brain interpolating there is how we're able to trick the brain into thinking our light is perfectly white when you're standing in a room, when in fact it's your brain doing the work for yep. you and filling it in. So thank God for the big, big, powerful brain on top of our heads here. So, um, well, you know, it's been really interesting. We don't want to take too much of your time. We do hope to have you back because we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. Um, we really appreciate the, the groundbreaking research you're doing on your side there and driving some of this forward and the lectures you give and the information you share. We tap into it for sure. And I know a lot of other people in the industry do. It's been great and just wonderful, wonderful to watch you and, and learn from you over these years and hope to meet you sometime soon at a trade show or something. Um, but again, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bugby. And thanks again for the amazing products. I might mention that Last fall, we taught a course here with this screen on cannabis cultivation, medical cannabis. That course is closed, but we get an overwhelming number of people emailing us. So we're looking now in the next, this summer and fall, doing the second version of that course. Um, so it's, it's well, really fits through Utah State University, but, but it's, there's been a lot of people uh, wanting to enroll course please make sure we find out about that we could promote it because we would like to be there i don't know the specific class that we were talking before this and you had sent me a link to a youtube that was i think at cornell about hemp production again i'm a believer with you cannabis hemp they're all big c cannabis so if you're watching this and you want to see a, a you can't maybe see that cannabis cultivation one the cornell university i think it was from about two years ago i don't know if i'm wrong on that dr bugby it's on youtube free check it out. It was super fun to watch that. It even ends with a nice Q&A where people are asking Dr. Bugby some fun questions to watch him answer. So I, I would recommend, since you can't see that one, go watch the Cornell hemp one that Dr. Bugby did. Excellent. Good, good use of an hour. So I, I think that one was only a few months ago. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, even, it was, uh, it was, uh, through Cornell. Yeah. But that one, I, if you do grow cannabis and you want to get a flavor that's a little not just broad, that some of the stuff Dr. Bogby does, but a talk on cannabis, it's out there and it's in the public domain. You can check it out on YouTube. And I would definitely recommend that. Well, again, thank you for listening in to the Black Dog LED Cultivation Cast. We hope you enjoyed this installment and our very first interview with the actual Dr. Bugby. Um, if you have any questions about the content, please feel free to reach out to us. If you have questions for Dr. Bugby, we'll try and get them to him if you can't get to him directly. And uh, don't forget, email us at podcast at Black Dog LED or hit us up on our website or anything like that. Everyone have a wonderful day and happy gardening.